this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm Rob Wolf. Today I have with me from Leicester, England, through the magic of Skype, the author Rod Duncan, who's here to discuss his novel, The Bullet Catcher's Daughter, the first book in his forthcoming series, The Fall of the Gaslit Empire. It's also Duncan's first foray into fantasy after four crime novels, the first of which, Backlash, was shortlisted for the John Creasy Dagger Award. I'm sure jumping genres poses risks, but Duncan seems to be on the right track because in January, the bullet catcher's daughter was named a finalist for the Philip K. Dick Award. And while I'm on the subject of the Philip K. Dick Award, let me just take a moment to congratulate the other finalists who include Emmy Itaranta, author of Memory of Water, who I had the pleasure of interviewing last July, and also Jennifer Marie Brissett, who is going to be on the podcast next month to talk about her novel, Elysium. And I don't know if I'll have a chance to speak to the other finalists, but let me just say who they are and offer my congratulations. There's The Book of the Unnamed Midwife by Meg Ellison, Maplecroft, The Borden Dispatches by Cherie Priest, and Reach for Infinity, edited by Jonathan Strahan. And the first prize will be announced at NorwestCon on Friday, April 3rd, 2015. So I'd like to both welcome Rod Duncan to the podcast and congratulate him on the Philip K. Dick Award nomination. Congratulations. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you. Well, you must have been thrilled to be nominated, I imagine. Uh, Well, completely thrilled, yes. There's this word in um, British vernacular, which is gobsmacked. I was gobsmacked, which is a kind of that sensation of being so totally taken aback and surprised that it's as if someone's slapped you in the face. But in a very good way. Well, I love the term gobsmacked. It sounds, yes, it does sound very British, but it's very evocative, too. And also evocative, I would say, is the title of your book, The Bullet Catcher's Daughter. You know, I think it's, I, I love the title precisely because you get this picture of someone actually literally trying to catch a bullet. And I also, by the way, like the uh, series title, The Fall of the Gaslit Empire, because that also is very evocative. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, the um, the bullet catcher's daughter. There's there's a lot of sleight of hand, shall we say, in in the book and in the story. And uh, and there's uh, I can't really say too much about that, but the title is kind of wound up in that in some way. Well, you know, I I wondered if the term because she and I don't think it's revealing too much, but she has a a background in circus, you know, coming from a a circus family and uh, so has talents related to that. And each chapter opens with a quote from something called the Bullet Catcher's Handbook, which has sort of pearls of wisdom about this kind of art of deception and magic. And it made me think, oh, this must be a term of art, you know, in the circus world. But when I looked it up, I, I didn't see that. I just saw bullet catcher as a term used today for someone who's in the military or a bodyguard, someone who literally risks being struck by a bullet in their line of work. Well, there is the, the famous stage illusion, which is the bullet catch, ah. in which someone uh, fires a gun from one side of the stage and uh, someone catches it either in their hand or in their mouth. 
uh, on the other side of the stage. Don't try this at home. In some of the illusions that were uh, that people practiced, the the gun was loaded, but then the, the the bullet, usually a musket ball, was taken out again by some surreptitious means, and so it was when it was fired that was just the you have the the explosion of the gunpowder and um, see the flash and everything, but nothing came out, and then the the person performing the magic on the other side of the stage would have somehow got that uh, musket ball into their mouth already so that they could pretend to have caught it. It's regarded as one of the most famous and potentially risky illusions of, of the, from the golden age of stage magic, and people still, still do it today. And indeed, there have been uh, stage magicians who have lost their lives when things went wrong with this particular illusion. If someone slipped something, you know, a member of the audience who was supposedly checking the gun slipped in a button or something like that into the into the gun that's that's where um these some of these terrible accidents may have happened ah okay well thank you for for explaining that and i hope that doesn't ruin anyone's pleasure and in, in the in the trick if they ever get to witness it so yeah in this fantastical world that i've created it's an alternate history really um but the term bullet catcher has come to mean the people who perform the grand stage illusion of one form or another, maybe the bullet catch or maybe some other grand illusion. So as you said, the book is based on an alternate history, and it seems to diverge from our own time at the time of the Luddites. And according to the unimpeachable source for history known as Wikipedia, they're they're a group that protested against newly developed labor-replacing machinery from 1811 to 1817. And I think a lot of people think of the term or the word Luddite today to refer to someone who rejects or doesn't like or understand new technologies. So I wanted to ask you why the Luddites inspired you or why you use them as kind of the leaping off point in your alternate history. Um, that's a really good question. I, I suppose I should put in a bit of background here. The city I live in right now, Leicester in the English Midlands, is a city that was mostly um, built up or through the Victorian age. And so an awful lot of the, the physical structure of the place, roads and, and housing, were, were built at that sort of time when there was a massive expansion of the city. So when I walk around Leicester, I can see, or anyone can see really, these indications of those Victorian builders, maybe in the inscriptions they left in some of the buildings or perhaps where the... the the road surface has crumbled away in the in the winter frost. You can just catch glimpses of cobblestones underneath and things like this. So it's it's everywhere just under the surface. And so I was playing around with ideas, looking for ways in which I might intervene in history to allow that aesthetic, that technology to still be with us kind of a couple of hundred years after the uh, Luddite Revolution. And, and the Luddite Revolution, or the Luddite Uprisings, I suppose, is what I seized on as a, one of the kind of domino fall of changes in history that I've uh, speculated could have happened in certain circumstances. Ned Ludd, if, if he actually did exist, is, is the person who gave his name to, the, to this, uh, this uprising. And he was uh, someone who worked in mills, Fab, you know, fabric producing mills, but he was 
supposedly born in the in the small town of Anstey, which is literally I, I drove through it earlier today. It's like, like two miles away from where I'm sitting right at this moment. So it's kind of very local to to here as a, a local piece of history. So I, I guess that's probably a very long way of explaining why it was that I used the uh, that bit of history to to kind of kick off what what we do in the book. And do people in in that town shun computers and <laughs> cars? Well, well yes, no, <laughs> no. It would be so nice to think, but no, no, not at all. There there is a, a, a road a little. Uh, close named after um, Ned Love that I drove past today. But uh, other than that, no, no, people are just as computer savvy and all that sort of stuff as uh, as anywhere else. And you've incorporated into the story, I mean, into the culture, it's really the background of the book, the setting, uh, ce- celebrations where people ritualistically smash machines because they believe that's what Ned Ludd did. Um, and it's sort of a celebratory thing. That's right, yes. The idea is for part of the, the world the northern part of the British Isles. Ned Ludd is this kind of father figure of, of their political um, origins, I suppose, as, as, a, as, as a, a republic in the north of, of, of Britain. And so, yes, they, they have Ned Ludd Day as a kind of national holiday, and they ritualistically, as you've said, smash up machines or models of machines that they've made. Uh, maybe you wanted to share a little bit about the resulting political, civil right consequences of of how things have evolved because you know england's divided uh in the bullet catcher's daughter or the gaslit empire in uh to two nations basically north and south and and one where the your main character elizabeth barnabas now lives at the opening of the book women i mean it really seems very much back to the victorian era where women can't be seen in public without being escorted and they're required to dress in a very conservative way. And of course, that puts certain constraints on Elizabeth, who very cleverly finds a way around or a way to at least cope with that uh, in a very unique way that still allows her to be independent. So, I mean, I just thought maybe you you might Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about why that culture, why that world and... Yes, sure. Well, yeah, as you say, so the the, something happened in my to branch my alternate history off from what actually happened kind of around 200 years ago and so it it made a lot more um political instability in britain uh, in those very early years of the 19th century which caused an extra impetus behind the luddites and indeed there were many other revolutionary or not so much revolutionary but um uh, looking for greater rights for, for working people movements at that time. It, Luddites weren't the only ones. And so I just give it a bit of extra push, and we get this, this revolutionary war in Britain, and it ends up with a, a kind of, more or less, it runs into a stalemate, and so you get the division of the country into the north, which is a republic, and to the south, which is a kingdom. But I wanted to tease out, as, as you said, the, the cultures of these two opposing factions, the opposing nations, to give them a bit more of an individual flavor. Because if they'd been divided for almost 200 years, and if they were fierce rivals, I figured they would they would kind of more or less define themselves as in opposition to each other. They would sort of glory in how they were different from the, from the other one. And so when we look back to the Victorian age in England, I think there's a tendency to see it as one thing, although obviously it lasted for a very long time. 
and uh, and so we kind of I think a somewhat confused idea of of different aspects of culture because we kind of lump them all in together. So at once we have this idea of the very starched, bombazine, black wearing, very serious, very you know austere kind of uh, world, and on the other hand we get the idea of you know the Oscar Wilde, the uh, the music hall, the very sort of wild and colourful uh, culture, and actually all these things existed within that long period of time. There was a period, you know, I think we're looking at eighteen eighties when when London sort of gloried in in a sort of extravagance, and then later on it, the the table turned and things became very much more austere. So what I've done is kind of separate those different aspects into the putting the more austere version into the north, into the republic, and this colourful flamboyance into the south, into the kingdom. And uh, so it kind of enables me to explore both of these archetypes, if you like, of, of how we think about the Victorian world. And let's talk about the International Patent Office, uh, because that is a an institution that is integral to this world and also the story. They control innovation in technology, and, and, and mm-hmm. basically their role seems to be preventing technology from advancing. I, I'm not exactly sure what their criteria are, but they mm-hmm. but but basically the result is in the present day, you know, things still seem would seem to our eye old fashioned. And and yet, um, there's something attractive about the way you portray it, Elizabeth. You know, to travel across the country is in a nice, is a, a beautiful blimp. There's a charm about it, and uh, I wondered what, if you could say a little bit about the patent office, but also mm. what you feel about this world. It's not entirely negative, in, in yeah. other words, the way you've portrayed it. Although, without a doubt, the patent office is a bit like the United States. Uh, National Security Administration, the NSA, which is <laughs> spying on people and controlling them, and and probably has too much power. So uh, mm. it's a, it's also a little, it's a little creepy, maybe. So I, I sort of see both, and I kind of wanted to hear you. At least those are my impressions, and you know, I wanted to hear what you thought about it. I think you're very perceptive there. So so basically, I um I saw this I- idea that we have the revolution in uh, in Britain and the formation of a powerful new republic. So we've got at that time in the 1820s, we've got a, a new powerful republic in the north of England and in Scotland, and we've got a, a powerful republic in France, and we've got a powerful republic in America. And so it's this this new axis of republican views is that what comes together to establish this um, new setup. And what it feels embracing this kind of anti-technology idea is that technology is often um, something that ends up hurting the working working man as they would see it, the working person, and uh, and so they they decide, wouldn't it be nice to rein this back? However, we can't really do that because any nation that doesn't technologically advance will be beaten in war by the other nations. So what we'll do is we'll make a kind of grand pact of mutual security in which we agree to. Um, pay for this international patent office to make sure that none of us start to develop nasty weapons or things that are going to oppress the the, the common person. And uh, as long as we all engage in this, then none of us is at a disadvantage from the other. 
and um, in this alternate history, more and more nations join this band of mutual um, protection. This um, and so that they they feel safer that way, and uh, and so the international patent office grows more and more powerful, as you've just alluded to. So, um, so that's why why it's there in in the alternate history and how it's how it's come to grow to dominate this world. So the the gaslit empire is this vast area, the majority of the world, which is watched over by the international patent office. And there are some kind of small areas just beyond the boundaries of the of this uh, gaslit empire, and uh, but they're kind of so chaotic that nothing ever really, you know, they're just constantly at war with each other. It's warring tribes and failed states, basically. So that's why it's it's come about. As to what I feel about it, stories uh, that interest me are ones in which I can kind of see the argument on both sides so the baddie isn't just kind of this baddie who's just after he wants to spread evil throughout the world because that's what he wants that's what he wants i like it when i can actually yeah yeah if he argued it i could really i could i could buy into that idea and at the same time i could buy into the opposite idea so where my protagonist and my antagonist end up you know in a with an belief system each of them that i can kind of yeah i can buy into there i find it a very interesting story because i can i feel that this clash of ideas which is manifested in a clash of people and action and things in the external world becomes very interesting to me because it kind of seems to play out this um the the sparks that you get when you clash different ideas against each other so yeah i can I can understand that the idea of the International Patent Office, I think particularly coming from an American standpoint, um, where the idea of a large federal or indeed supranational agency would be kind of really very, very negative to many people. But at the same time, it it's kind of sees itself as a good thing. It sees itself doing a good job. And at the same time, I've got my protagonist, Elizabeth Barnabas, who is very much someone who is opposed to external authority being applied. And I can also buy into that. And so she and the patent office are bound to come to blows with each other in some way. And that, that's what I'm interested in. Well, there is something inherently appealing in a world where there don't seem to be nuclear bombs or teenagers glued to Facebook, or adults for that matter too. But then it also I also started to wonder... Well, if if coal burning it continues forever, you know what happens with global warming, and do they can they even monitor, you know, and understand the science behind global warming? But those are all things beyond. I mean, those are those those have nothing to do really with your story. But but I love a book that gets me thinking about those things. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Well, I I kind of, I'm motivated to write by ideas and and to see how ideas play out in the real world. And um, at the same time, I'm, I have no interest in reading very starchy <laughs> philosophy books. You know what I mean? So I like to kind of let ideas play in, 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 a, in an imagined world and see what happens. And usually it's kind of interesting. So I'm glad you like it too.
initially, I was going to ask you if you found it challenging to write in the voice of a woman because it's a first-person narration. And then I, I saw an interview you had done where somebody asked you what the biggest challenge was in writing this book, and you said the challenge was really how to go about revealing this alternate world where the rules and the, the nature of the world is different when you basically don't have an omniscient narrator, when it's a first-person narration, so that, you know, Elizabeth the things that would seem remarkable to the reader really are matter of fact to her. So she's not going to announce those things. So you kind of have to reveal them in a, in a, in a casual way. So I guess I'm, I'm putting these two questions together, you know, writing in the voice of a woman and also creating a world through a first person narration. Like how, how did you, how did you deal with those challenges? Um, okay. Well, let's talk about the, um, the gender issue. I, th- I think gender identity and gen- gender presentation is kind of a theme that runs right the way through um, the bullet catcher's daughter, because in order to do certain things in her world, she she needs at times to um, to cross dress and and really do it in a convincing way. Which, because of I suppose the the illusion, the the grand illusion that she was trained to to be part of in in her childhood on the stage, she's actually got a very good understanding of the way people perceive gender. And uh, and so she's she's kind of able to do this, not flawlessly, but it, it's in, enough to get her out of some scrapes at different stages. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting that uh, here's me as a, a man writing first person from the point of view of a woman who is herself at times trying to present herself as a man. There's a kind of there's an interesting kind of symmetry going on there. Yeah, there certainly is. And I just want to say that you point out a few things that, you know, her gait changes when she sort of mid-stride, like switches. Or not, she never does it mid-stride, but she, she's kind of it has the art of the quick change artist. So she can very quickly, with her costuming and, and this amazing hat slash purse that I, I would love to see how that actually works, that one flips into a, it sounds like a top hat and then it flips around into a, a little velvet purse or something. But she's thinking about things like these key details that I guess one might not normally think of distinguish a man from a woman like their gait, like their the way they hold their shoulders and the confidence with which they might walk in this this particularly repressed world where women are, are meant to be, you know, not uh, adventurous. Yeah, I did. It's, it's an interesting area. It's an interesting area to research. Obviously, a lot of people who are interested in terms of presenting themselves as a gender opposite to their biological sort of chromosome defined uh, sex. So, so there's there's actually quite a lot of a lot of people discussing these issues um, out there, and indeed, actors who who may wish to um, to, to carry off this uh, this illusion, if you call it that. As well, so just things like the way people walk, the, the movement of the shoulders, the movement of the feet, how where the where the weight comes down in your foot, does it come down on the heel first or the toe first? All these kinds of things. Um, it, so it's it's a very very interesting area, and I, I, but I think with, you know, the book is about illusion, and a- any writer trying to write from the point of view of someone different from themselves. Is, is pulling off some kind of illusion. And they are trying to, with smoke and mirrors to make it seem as if they are realistically that person. Now, sometimes that person may be different in all kinds of different ways from, from yourself as the writer. And uh, But people, I think, are much more focused on the question of sex and, and gender than other things. So I am, for example, I'm dyslexic. So 
for me, is it a bigger challenge to write from the point of view of someone who's not dyslexic, or is it a bigger challenge to write from the point of view of someone who is from a different time, or, or someone who is a different sex? And, um, and all these are, are huge <laughs> kind of um, uh, huge differences, if you like. And I think, uh, so all writers are themselves in some ways cross-dressers in a psychological sense, because we have to put our minds into the minds of other people, of, of different sexes, of, of different backgrounds, of all, all kinds. So how, how, is it, how is it done? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It's one of those things. My first published novel was also first person from a female point of view. And actually, over time, I found that the characters I've written, uh, the protagonist characters I've written, female, have tended to be more lively and more interesting than the male ones. And I suspect there's something psychological going on here. And I think it's possibly because I more easily see them as someone else, not myself. And thus I'm able to make them more clearly defined and less mediocre, if you like. So I suspect that's going on. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But it's, it's certainly a matter of setting up things that, that the reader will feel is, are absolutely true to that gender, to that sex, early on in the book. And then later on in the book, anything that you do, if you've really established it properly in the beginning, anything you do, the reader will tend to read as uh, an individual trait of that person. Uh, rather than saying, oh, well, is, would a man do that or would a woman do that? They kind of say, yeah, I accept this is an individual now, and I will kind of think, ah, so they've done that. That's an interesting individual trait. So I think I'm probably rambling here. Well, it's fascinating, everything you're saying. So I, th I think the, the, there's a fundamental question. Is there more variation in character within one sex or more variation between the the two sexes. And I think that actually uh, a lot of the variation that people think of is there is socially defined and culturally defined and is not inherent to our biological you know, DNA, if you like. But society pushes us in these different ways. I think there may be differences, but they're much, I think, much smaller and more subtle than uh, the way people would generally think. Um, so... Okay, now that was half the question, I think. I would like to go back to that other question, but I think I have a follow-up question now to what you were saying, which is, you know, you mentioned that you are dyslexic and, you know, you're also talking about a writer's, you know, cross-dressing. I love the way you put it. They're always, you know, crossing over and dressing like someone else in their characters. And I wonder if being dyslexic makes it easier for you to be creative in a way and imagine yourself into other characters or not. Maybe I'm making a false connection there, but in any event, I wanted to ask you about being dyslexic and a writer and what the relationship is. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think <laughs> it's a really good question. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I've only ever been this way. So how can, how can I, uh, how can I, it would be nice to be able to be someone else genuinely for, a, you know, just for 24 hours to know what it's like. So you can say, ah, oh, yeah, I, that, that thing that I do, that is individual in this particular way. Right, that's a good point. Uh, so there is a big debate in terms of dyslexia about creativity. There, it's um, known that 
there are a disproportionate, a vastly disproportionate number of dyslexics in the creative arts. So uh, I've been looking at, uh, for various reasons, Loughborough University, which is just up the road from here, and uh, in their art department that they, uh, I can see if I get the statistic correct, 60% of the dyslexics that the university knows about within its student body are in that one department, 60%. So six out of every 10 wow. of the dyslexics they know about are in the arts art department. So, there's this, so that's a, a, an observation that there's no doubt, uh, no one would, would query that. The question is, is that that so many other avenues tend to be closed to them that they end up in that area, or is it that there is an, a, a natural propensity to, to move in that particular direction? And there are people who will argue, argue it both ways, and I, I, I don't know is the, is the answer. I feel that there may be an actual natural propensity, but probably also the other avenues being closed. So I, I just don't know about it. And, and in terms of writing, again, we find that there are quite a number of dyslexic writers and poets and, uh, and novelists indeed. And it may be that there's something about the lack of automaticity with language, the fact that one has to kind of wrestle with it a little bit, that uh, once you've overcome the the, the kind of basic problems of writing, which the word processor is tremendous at helping me with, once those basic problems are overcome, the fact that it doesn't come quite automatically enables you perhaps, uh, it can be argued anyway, enables you to, to, to kind of treat language, go beyond what one might have done without, if you were just doing it automatically as a thing that came natural, naturally to you. Now, I, I don't know if that's true. That has been suggested to me. And it does, there, there is a ring of truth about it, but I don't know. Uh, and I'm surprised, and this is clearly showing my ignorance, that someone who is dyslexic, you know, would have a fondness, such a fondness for words and such a drive to write that they become not only a writer, but a successful writer like yourself, an award-winning writer. I would think based on what I imagine were, you know, difficult episodes in childhood, learning to read or having certain struggles when it came to reading, that you'd be inclined to hate writing. (laughs) Ah, yeah, well, (laughs) it's interesting, isn't it? I I certainly avoided anything to do with writing for many years. And it was the, you know, for work, I had to type. And so I learned to type. And the word processor developed to a stage where it was I started to dissolve that barrier that used to exist for me. And at that point, I started to write. But I had been telling myself stories for many years before that. Uh, It's just I'd never written them down. And so uh, I think everyone tells themselves stories. I'm sure that must be the case. Uh, I'm somewhat... I have a kind of compulsive thing going on where I kind of feel I have to. I don't feel quite whole unless I've done something... Um, in that kind of area. So I, I, I guess once the gate was open for me, I kind of rushed through. And we're all, we're all luckier for it. Um, so let's go back to that question, which was basically when you're, when you're working with a first-person narrator who is, is the voice who's showing you the world, but you know, to, to Elizabeth Barnabas, things are very matter-of-fact, things that seem remarkable to us. So how did you navigate that? And I, and I do understand you said it was one of the bigger challenges, so maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, it was. I, I kind of naively thought, well, 
writing a novel is writing a novel. You know, I've written crime novels before, so I, I just feel moved to write this uh, this new story. How how hard can that be? You know, and uh, I think that was um, uh, <laughs> that was just ignorance <laughs> on my part, um, because of course each genre has has a whole range of things that one needs to understand, you know, in order to be able to do these things um, or try to do these things successfully. And so I wrote the novel really actually three times by the time I got to the stage that I'm uh, where it started to be going out to, to publishers and things. Initially, I wrote the story and I was happy enough with the story, but this it was this aspect of how to reveal the world. And as you say, through a first person narrator for whom many of these things are not unusual that she's seeing. And and so it was that that I found myself having to rewrite and then rewrite again. And I kind of, initially I wrote it with, I suppose, more of a tendency towards the information dump where, where I, would, I would allow my protagonist to just, you know, tell us something about the history of the world and stuff like that. And, um, and then I, I kind of thought, no, that's not right. And Various people who I sometimes uh, share my work with said they didn't think that was working. So I stripped it all out. And so really just to let the reader drop into the world and sudden immersion and not explain anything and uh, see if that worked. And again, that didn't quite work. People said, no, we need to know more of this stuff. So ultimately, the third time through, I, I suppose I came to some accommodation between those two tendencies. So Elizabeth, who narrates the story, is she's not averse from time to time to letting you know things, to just to to fill you in on a little bit of detail about the world, but in quite a gentle way. It's not really, you know, it's not one of the kind of old style classic sci-fi information dump chapters. It's uh, it's quite a, it's a quite reined back, if you like, but she she will do it just a little bit. And other than that. I hope that the events of the story uh, convey the world so that the reader is kind of doing this this job, the puzzle-solving job of figuring out why these things are in this strange way. Why is there a border across <laughs> across the country? What, how's that come about? Uh, you know, without really going out of my way to explain it. So this is the first book in a series. Is it? A, do you know if is it is it a trilogy? Has that been preset, or is it an unspecified number of of books uh, coming coming down the pike? Right. When it was first um, released by Angry Robot Books, they described it as a duology, and that was on the basis that like, we just signed up for two books. They that's now extended to three and. What I can tell you is that the series title being The Fall of the Gaslit Empire, after three books, the Gaslit Empire will not have fallen yet. So there is more to go. Uh, I hope that by the time we get to three, the reader will feel there is a nice sense of closure. So we, But I, I certainly I have a, a longer series than that in mind. Great. So there's just one last thing I was going to ask you about. I saw in the last sentence of your bio, on, on Amazon at least, it says, you're a screenwriter and you were once eaten alive in the feature film Zombie Undead. <laughs> yes. And I wanted to ask, was it fun being eaten alive? Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was kind of, uh, that was very good fun. Um, and uh, yeah, well, it was, uh, I got very uh, covered in this sticky um 
corn syrup with red food coloring, uh, which is uh, goes for, for blood. And, uh, yeah, so I was fairly well drenched in the stuff by the time we'd finished. And uh, it was great fun. It was the first um, film directed by my good friend, Reese Davis, who uh, I've collaborated with on and with on various projects in, uh, since then. So, yeah, he was making this low-budget zombie movie and said, I need someone of your kind of age bracket. <laughs> and he'd seen some of the stuff I'd done in short movies before. So he said, could you, you know, come in and be one of the characters? So I did. And it was great fun. Fantastic. Thank you very, very much for writing The Bullet Catcher's Daughter and for joining me on the podcast. Oh, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. And thanks for, for your interest in it. Well, I've been talking to Rod Duncan about his Philip K. Dick Award nominated book, The Bullet Catcher's Daughter, published by Angry Robot Books. And it's the first book in his Fall of the Gaslit Empire series. And the second book, Unseemly Science, is due out in May. So stay tuned for that. Uh, you can listen to more podcasts at our website, www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com or on iTunes and other podcasting apps. And if you've been enjoying my conversations with authors, please leave a review. That'll help others find the podcast and help others find the talented authors I, I interview. You can find New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy on Facebook and on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi. I'm Rob Wolf. Follow me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. Our logo is by Michael Thibodeau. Theme music by Michael Aaron. And the editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And as I mentioned before, my guest next month will be Jennifer Marie Brissett to talk about Elysium. That's another Philip K. Dick Award nominee. So buy the book, buy The Bullet Catcher's Daughter, so you can be reading and caught up with the hottest science fiction fantasy of today. And thanks so much for listening.